This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. When Stephen Fabes left his job as an emergency room doctor and set out to cycle around the world, frontline medicine quickly faded from his mind. But leaving medicine behind was not as easy as it seemed. As Stephen crossed continents on a journey that would take six years and cover more than 53,000 miles, he finds people whose health has suffered and others whose lives have been saved through kindness and community. Stephen joins me today to talk about his new book, Signs of Life, and also about narrative pacing and travel blogging as a way to sharpen writing skills. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. So you are a writer, medical doctor, and a cyclist, and your new book, Signs of Life, documents a six-year cycling adventure you took around the world. I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about your um, background as a doctor and your trip. Yeah, so I was I was working back in 2010. I was working as a junior doctor in central London in this hospital called St. Thomas's Hospital, which is this kind of big, prestigious, ivory white uh, place opposite the Houses of Parliament. And I was doing my my medical training there. I was working on the wards and in the emergency room. And I I'd been so I'd been qualified for about four years, I guess. And then I I, I for various reasons that we might go into, I kind of decided I'd sort of blow up my life and quit my job <laughs> and waved goodbye to my friends, my family, to the doctors and nurses as well um, from outside my hospital. Um, I'd my sort of new life was contained in four panniers attached to my bicycle, and I, I cycled off across the hospital forecourt with a vague plan or a plan anyway to to try to cycle around the world and uh, ideally the across six continents. And I thought that that would kind of give me a some sense of the scale and diversity of the globe. I, I guess if I was to cross all you know six sort of major populated continents, and then I would. Um, um, I didn't know how long that was going to take, so um, at least five years. Um, so the the book that I've written, Signs of Life, I guess that is um, it, it, it. It's it's about that journey. It's 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 a travel narrative. It's chronological. It's about that sort of cycling adventure, um, and it's it was obviously difficult to get six years of of travel into mm-hmm. one book. So I've had to be quite selective with the stories I've told, but. Um, running through the book is another thread as well, which is about, um, as I, I got through the journey, I was visiting remote medical projects, trying to understand a little bit about the, the, the social and political forces underlying health and disease. So that was a kind of parallel adventure, I suppose, another journey. And then um, uh, the book also goes into the history of um, some pioneering adventurers as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, blowing up your life, <laughs> and I want to uh, kind of talk on, uh, about that for a second. Um, you mentioned uh, in in your book at the beginning uh, the German term um, "Sensucht," which has like this uh, meaning. I guess is kind of like nostalgia, but also like longing or yearning for um, something more, something unpronounced, perhaps. Like, a, what was going on in your mind um, that led you to want to kind of escape? or blow up your yeah, life 
Yeah, there's certainly a sort of vagueness to that term, isn't there? In, implied that there's not, it's not something that you specifically long for, but it's just a sense that you want something a bit more out of life, maybe. And although I was very much enjoying my job as a, a doctor and looking forward to getting more responsibility and, and climbing the ladder, and that was very much what was expected of me, um, there was this kind of more mischievous part of me, I guess, that just wanted out and wanted an adventure and I think um, probably what inspired me more than anything was this idea of, of wanting a more uncertainty and and life felt a bit too mapped out a bit predictable um, in my life in London and so I was that's what I was really after I guess um, I'm not very good at explaining why it had to be such a long journey over six <laughs> years and it took me over six years in the end but um I, I'd had some experience of traveling long distances by bicycle years before when I was a teenager. That was the only journey, in fact, that I'd done on a, a bicycle previously, about 12 years before the, this big journey. And that that introduced me to this you know, life traveling on a bicycle and how that exciting that can be. And that sense of vulnerability as well of being alone in wild places. And I was I was very much... Um, smitten with with that kind of sense of of wanting to feel vulnerable, and, and I, that's what I, I really enjoyed about this journey as well. It's addictive, isn't it? This uh, this feeling of uh, vulnerability that you're mentioning. That earlier journey um, was that the one in South America that you took with a buddy. Yeah, that's right. That was with my younger brother. Okay, uh, Roman. Your brother. That's so right. yeah, we we cycled. Um, it took us about. I think it took us like five months and we, he was 17 and I was 19. So we were like, a great we were really, you know, young and idiotic and like, <laughs> and naive and, and whatever. And, and quite sort of, yeah, we didn't really know what we were doing. We had all, there was all kinds of disasters involved in that trip. We had fights with each other. We ran out of food, we ran out of money and um, <laughs> the, the bikes fell apart because we weren't maintaining them. So it was, it was in many ways, it was a disaster, but of course it was also planted the seed of this like much bigger adventure. Um, and I remember coming to the end of that journey in the Atacama Desert in Northern Chile. And I think that's where the idea of this journey started because I remember just looking outwards and thinking, well, I could keep going. And what would happen if I did? I get to the cloud forests of Colombia, get through Central America, I could cycle up through the past the beaches of the uh, the US West Coast, or keep going to get to Alaska, which sounded a really like promising wilderness, mm. you know, somewhere that I would be really interested in seeing. So, um, yeah, I guess that's where where the idea sprung from. Yeah. It's interesting if you go to your website, you can see kind of a, a map of the world and and your route. And, you know, you literally kind of touch on six continents with the except, well, you don't touch on uh, <laughs> Antarctica, but, you know, the, the six major continents you go, it's, it's impressive to see. You mentioned kind of cycling up um, and having this kind of dream goal of Alaska. And earlier, just a few moments ago, you mentioned, um, you know, this difficulty that you had about what to include in your book. And uh, it just makes me think about, you know, the, the, the chapters in which you're writing about South America going up through the United States, through Canada and to Alaska. I mean, these are this this event in, in, in your book happens maybe a chapter or two. It's it's um, it's a vast amount of space. Uh but condensed in, into, you know, just a chapter or two. And I was wondering, like, in terms of like narrative and pacing, like, how does that, how does that, 
how do you deal with that? Like, how do you know what to include in your narrative and, and what to, to exclude? Well, the, the first choice I had to make really was whether I was going to do the, the whole journey in, in one book. And initially I wasn't keen on that. I was thinking about, I was going to write just about Asia. Uh, that was for me, the more interesting part of the journey. It was where there was a lot of challenges. There was, um, I was, as I mentioned before, there's this kind of medical thread running through the book of me mm-hmm. visiting these remote medical projects and, and the sort of a journey of understanding a guest there. And, and that was, there was more of that in Asia as well. But I, the more I thought about it, I realized that um, doing the whole journey in one book would be the right idea. You could really then dig in a bit about, you know, the, the motivations and then you could see how, you know, your perspective changes through different experiences. And then um, I actually spent, there's about three chapters on the issue of coming home after such a long journey and trying to slot back into society, which is, I think, really interesting as well, because lots of people, when I'm giving talks about the journey are curious about how I how I sort of survived that or how I got back into sort of you know, into normal life again and, and then so, but um the pacing so I think if you're going to do that if you've made a decision to include six years in one book then you, you can't escape the fact that some of it's going to be fast paced um mm-hmm. but I think um what you don't have to do and what you maybe um, initially I felt like I needed to do was to try to give everything equal weighting and, um, uh, it would be, but, but then you realize you have that freedom in a travel, but you don't have to do that at all. And in fact, um, I think, um, as you were saying, I was moving, the narrative moves fairly fast at the beginning, uh, but it soon, um, sort of slows down. And I, and I think the stories that I've told in the first few chapters, you know, still, I'm glad they're in the book. I'm still really think they're worth telling. There's lots to reflect on. But um, I, I am moving pretty quickly at, at that point. And then I think out of the 20 chapters in the book, 11 of them are on Asia, are in Asia. So there is still a real like you know, focus on Asia. Um, and then there's a, there are three about, one is sort of coming back into the UK and then one's sort of sort of the reintegration. And then there's a bit of a sort of conclusion sort of chapter at the end, sort of mm-hmm. epilogue really. Um, and... Uh, yeah, the first sort of probably five chapters are, are, are fairly are fairly quick, fairly fast paced. But that's the way you have to do it. And you just have to be selective. You just have to pick the right stories. And I think it helps to have a really good editor as well that can help you with that mm-hmm. process. And I was really, I mean, I was picking out the stories, the, the, the parts of my journey that perhaps were, you know, had there was a sense of adventure there was certainly entertaining stories I, I, I'm a fan myself of kind of entertaining humorous travelogues so I wanted to include those and then anything with a very strong um, medical focus because that's again a very important thread running through this book mm-hmm. um, and then I'm throwing in these stories of the early adventurers along the way as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah you say uh, picking the right stories and, and you mentioned you know lingering in Asia a little bit um more it seems like in, in asia is when you start to encounter um some of the the border crossing issues where you know they give you these stern interrogations and grillings and then when they realize you're not a terrorist or something they you know bestow gifts upon you and send you on your way um but you know there are these kind of interesting moments like that but there are also these kind of um i guess poignant medical moments or moments that make you reflect on um, medicine and the nature of life. Um, here I'm thinking about the moment in, in Nepal where you 
um, after the blizzard, there's a, you know, a cadaver, a corpse, um, kind of frozen solid. Um, how do these, I guess, I'm trying to formulate a question out of this here. Um, you know, we're talking about narrative and, and, and inclusion, like you have all of this material to draw from, so to speak. Right. And, um, you, you, you mentioned these kind of very peak experience moments in, in Bolivia, you know, having these, these moments where you're approached with, with, uh, people, with armed people, with, with, uh, suspicious people with, with guns. And so how do you, while you're on the road, how do you kind of balance the, the fear for your life and, you know, the, the rationale that you, you want to go out and live, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I sort of trusted people as I traveled really, there were some moments definitely with, there was a bit worried. I think, um, there was an episode in Peru where I was marched out of my tent at gunpoint in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but there, a lot of those things really stemmed from a, 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 there was sort of mutual fear and there was misunderstanding maybe. And then things often resolved themselves. And, and in that, on that occasion, this guy made me some soup, you know, and we, uh, okay, uh we sat down, uh, around his kitchen table afterwards. I kind of had a, had a happy ending there, but, um, yeah, I, I did, and 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 I went to Afghanistan as well, so I was quite worried about my safety there. But I, I think, I think, and anyone who's done much travelling will recognise that that there's you get a huge amount of hospitality um, in different places around the world. And I think as a cyclist as well, you stand out. You're quite a blatant traveller. You know, you're moving quite slowly through these small villages, um, and that's when you get. Um, lots of offers people are curious first of all they want to know what you're doing and where you're off to and then you get a lot of offers of places to stay and um i stayed not only in people's homes of course but schools and hospitals and police stations and army barracks and courthouses and kinds mm-hmm. of different places yeah. i suspect here not not to make this a, a, about race or nationality but the fact that you're also a white man on a bicycle in some parts of the world might you know, grant you certain privileges um, that you wouldn't have otherwise had. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I was very aware of that. I think as I was traveling, that you have this kind of yeah, I call it sort of the full house of privilege, really being yeah. sort of like you know white Western uh, male. That and I think that the, the, you do get um, you, you're you're sort of often sort of trusted, and um, people will go out of their way to help you in lots of different places. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and, and i think also being a doctor as well opened lots of doors you know people, people do have a lot of of trust and respect for doctors and um that that was really helpful in terms of you know when i was trying to explore trying to visit these medical projects and um reflecting upon my own experiences working in the nhs and and then approaching uh, doctors or or um or clinics and people were usually very keen to show me around and to tell me a little bit about what they were doing and that that was very helpful that was useful because i think i think after a while when i was traveling i was finding that i wasn't really getting under the surface of things and I, and i guess that's just for the simple reason that i didn't have the time we didn't have the language to get to the heart of things. I was very sort of, you know, traveling. Um, you know, I wasn't stopping for anywhere very long, but I felt that medicine really was a lens to try to sort of try to understand a little bit more mm-hmm. about what was, what was going on to sort of see, see better, I guess. And um, 
it was also some I, I miss my job very much and so visiting these projects was a good way to sort of sate my curios- curiosity um, and it was something to write about as well so. mm-hmm. I recently spoke with Monica Connell for the podcast and she spent some time in Nepal doing some anthropology anthropological research and I mean, she's she's not a doctor but um, she recalls being asked for uh, medical advice like she would be pulled to the villages and because she was a westerner they thought that she had like western medicines and, and things to help out and throughout your 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 book um, you often talk about these moments in which uh, people pull you aside and say hey let's go visit my aunt who is suffering or uh, something like that. And it, I, I guess it helps you in the story and helps us as readers kind of you know, understand the shared humanity and also this kind of like weird notion that when we're traveling, we, we you know, we get this sanitized version of the world and we don't really connect in the ways in which you kind of connect with people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that, um, so I was saying you get this very rosy view of the world as a cyclist with all this, lots of hospitality. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that I, I found after a while that was almost frustrating because you don't, you're not really privy to some of the, yeah. the things that are perhaps um, the sort of what's going on behind the scenes a little bit. And I think for me as a doctor, even working in London, you're, it's a real privilege to hear people's stories. You know, that's one of the great things about being a doctor is that you, people will tell you their stories. And I think that working in London, I, that that reveals the city to me a little bit. I'm, I'm able to understand a bit more about how the city functions, about the social and political forces at work. And so that was part of the motivation for visiting these medical projects was that I'd experienced that in London. So perhaps I could I could experience the same as I was traveling. Mm -hmm. um, I'd find out a little bit more if I was able to sort of speak to doctors, nurses, speak to patients. Wasn't really working as a doctor. I didn't really feel that was appropriate, um, generally speaking, just because I wasn't anywhere for very long. I didn't understand what was going on. So I was there more to observe and then to to write about these places. Mm -hmm. You you just mentioned um, telling stories and without giving much away, uh, this is kind of how the book kind of ends, you know, in this notion of, of telling stories, which I think uh, was a nice kind of end point. Um, but you're not just telling stories now after the fact in your book. Uh, this is something that you did along the way. You kept a blog. And I was wondering if you can uh, talk about that a little bit. Like, um, what like what was your original purpose or intention with keeping the blog? Was it just to you know, keep mom happy or what was going on there? Um, yeah, I, I suppose it was to kind of keep uh, friends and family informed, I guess, mm-hmm. initially in, in that it was easier than just, you know, writing out different emails to people and telling them what, was up, what I was up to. Yeah. But I I enjoyed doing it. I found it very cathartic. I found it kind of, I, it was a way to occupy my mind as I was traveling because cycling all day, every day, there are times where you get a little bit bored of your own thoughts. I mean, to have all that time is a luxury to begin with, but then it can be a bit overwhelming. So I was able to sort of um, use some of that time to write the blog in my head, I guess. So it was a way of killing time. And um, as I, as the trip progressed, so I would, I would kind of bash out these blog posts once a month 
in an internet cafe somewhere. I didn't have a computer or a phone or anything like that for the majority of the journey. And so once a month was fine. I was kind of consistent with that. And the blog gained a sort of a greater, bigger and bigger audience as I made my way around the world. And that also was great practice, of course, for, for writing. And, and I started reading a lot of travel books and books in general, really. I was reading a sort of book a week so I had nothing else to do in the evening times, mm-hmm. alone in my tent at the side of a road. So I was reading a lot, um, writing these blog posts, which quite long sometimes. And then I, as the journey progressed, I started um, writing for magazines as well. So tra- travel magazines, adventure travel magazines, entering little writing contests as well, travel writing contests learning a bit about the craft of travel writing and then um, the idea of a book. There was an idea probably quite early on, but, you know, having had all this experience with, with writing, with the articles and with the blog, um, that, that, was, that was great sort of material when I came to write the book. I and mean, it's quite different in the end to the, to the blog, but it was um, a way of developing as a writer, I guess. Mm-hmm. So at what point um, did you realise that, more people than just your mom was was reading the blog like did you ever get the sense that there's you know in the middle of your trip did you ever get the sense that you know there's something here there's something interesting it's just not interesting for me but there's you know a community of people that are really interested in and what I'm doing and the idea of this yeah I think so I mean I wasn't um I think probably to begin with I was writing more for myself than anybody else and then um it was yeah, it was just something to get my teeth into. Really, is is a way that you can be sort of vaguely creative, and 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 then, yeah, there are. I think even by the time I left, the internet was very much saturated in blogs by people traveling around the world on bicycles. I mean, it was becoming an increasingly popular thing to do. So, I guess to kind of grab people's attention, you sort of you you you. you put more and more effort into trying to tell these stories in an engaging or entertaining way and and then maybe thinking about a bit more deeply about what things mean that you're observing along the way as well and yeah it just it just kind of snowballed really um and yeah towards the end of the journey I was having a lot more people reading the blog posts and then there was a very obvious next step was to write a book about the journey mm-hmm. you mentioned that uh about halfway into your your journey in uh latin america somewhere you ran out of cash and um you know i wonder what that was like where you're like oh shit i need to keep the pot party going i need to to write for some uh, magazines and generate an income and how did that look did did you reach out to the publications or did they somehow get wind of you and propose that like how did that how did that work yeah um yeah, so I ran out after about my savings lasted about three years. I wanted to continue traveling, but I wanted to, I didn't want to stop and work. I wanted to see if there were any ways that I could make money as I moved. I was able to do that a few different ways, one of which was writing. The other one was speaking. So I was speaking mm-hmm. in in schools, often like international schools, but other places as well about the, about the journey. I'd be able to get a little bit of money from that. And then I got a little bit of money from from magazines. No, I, I certainly wasn't approached by magazines. I wouldn't say that I'd, I'd love if, if that was the case, but it was more <laughs> a case of having to hustle yeah. and sending out a vast number of pictures as any kind of aspiring travel writer will recognize the process. 
uh, which is the same actually with the schools. I, I have to spend a whole day somewhere just emailing head teachers from and doing these kind of um, pitches, you know, to try and get to try and get talks. Um, and then the article started rolling in, so I was getting regular regular features in magazines, and I was living very cheaply. I was living on less than ten dollars a day, so I didn't need much to continue. So actually, it was a kind of it was a, it was a a reasonable way to earn enough money as I, as I moved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, definitely inter- interesting to think about this in the term in terms of uh, finances. And we'll just note here on uh, I think it's your older blog you do have kind of a section where you you talk about statistics finances and those types of things um which is interesting you know from this side of from this side of it um looking at the time here we're getting a little bit uh close to to time um i was wondering if you could read a short passage from the book for us sure close us out I thought I'd read across a lot of borders, across I think more than a hundred, hundred and two maybe international borders, and um, during the course of this journey. So I'm going to read a bit about crossing a border in the Pamirs into Tajikistan. Um, so here we go. There wasn't a great deal going on at the pass. A stack of empty switchbacks, a swirling mineral wind. Hard to believe that this strange, spine-tingling place was, in fact, an international border crossing. My passport was stamped in an oil tank, repurposed as an immigration office, and I was released into one of the oddest-shaped countries in the world. Tajikistan has a wandering border of jags, tongues, legs and bite marks, more accidental splat than definite shape, like a dropped egg. By most accounts, Stalin, cackling like a cartoon villain, rushed off the national borders of the stands with a pencil on a map, ensuring pockets of ethnic minorities in each territory and thereby discouraging unity and quelling old Soviet fears of an Islamic uprising. If not an outright myth, this is probably a Eurocentric reading of history or at least an overly simplistic take on things. Central Asian borders were drawn with regard to census and economic and transport data, as well as ethnicity, and had at times been altered at a local level rather than dictated by Moscow. We don't know, of course, how things might have been had the lines been sketched differently, but tension, like the sort that bubbles up every now and then in Central Asia, is predictable wherever there is a line. Drawing borders is indelicate, like a surgical dissection, leaving scar tissue for life. There can be no authentic border, just as there is no perfect wound. The blade won't slip in painlessly following natural planes of tissue. It must sever and rupture and bleed. The road beyond the border, scoring the Pamir Plateau, was loyal to its online reputation. A little bit of everything ensued, cracked and potholed asphalt, pools of sand, a cobble of rocks and cheap tar that melted and left oily tendrils on the soles of my shoes. Beside me were ridges coloured like bloodstains, and I wondered if I was dizzy, not for lack of oxygen, but for for the wonderful sparseness here, the sky of fast-moving clouds, their shadows marbling the plateau. I sensed a capricious land, history gashed and smashed into the mountainsides, the battle scars of wild weather, landslides, avalanches and earthquakes, a bygone violence that I felt as potential energy. The M41 sounded like it should be a busy artery, but in the fact, traffic was scant. 
The road, better known as the Pamir Highway, was formally completed by Soviet engineers in the 1930s, though ancient armies had stamped its course for centuries, as well as Buddhist pilgrims, explorers, and perhaps Marco Polo too, if the stories are true. Today, travelling cyclists come to the Pamirs each summer, and from a distance, they look like pack mules. Closer up, the saddlebags turn to panniers, the hooves to wheels. Three lumbered towards me now, but they retain the mournful air of mules. Two ma- men and a woman, dirty, wretched and grey-faced. They gaped at me and their eyes dribbled. There was a round of soft handshakes. I dropped my head, pressed on, as if towards a front line. It's a great uh, passage there. And I think from that, the listeners could get a sense that this is not just a you know, travel book. This is what I saw. This is what I did. This is what I, uh, a travelogue. This is what I saw. This is what I did. This is what I ate. It's, uh, this is more thoughtful. It's reflective. It's not just about you, but it's about, you know, bigger, bigger questions. And I think that's why it's a rewarding book to read. Yeah. I think, um, it's interesting, isn't it? I think that, uh, that, that travel writing has changed in that regard a little bit. You, you, uh-huh. you looking at some of the the old travel books, I would was read. You, you didn't really get much sense of the the person writing that. You did through their writing, but they wouldn't really reflect much on themselves. And mm-hmm. then things have changed a little bit, I think. But I think it's important to have a sort of balance, really, and to to be to be outward looking is always really important. Travel books, you don't want to be sort of self-absorbed and i think that it's um it's it, you you if you're going to go away and do a six-year bike ride you do owe people a bit of an explanation as to do that you, you know you, you do need to dip into your motivations and things but i think for me um the focus of writing this book was was very much on on what was happening in the world around me it wasn't i'm not particularly interested in the the inner journey it's much more about the uh the people I met and what that made me consider and, and certainly using the, the medical lens to try and sort of get under the surface of things. But the inner journey is there um, and also the humor is there too. Uh, you reference Eric Newby throughout the book as uh, someone you read um, and of course, funny, funny book, um, but he's on the other end <laughs> of the extreme. You know, it's, it's about, it's about him almost entirely like chapters about politics and, you know, you know, the bigger picture, I would say, um, is literally an aside in his in his work. Whereas, you know, yours, it's kind of uh, interwoven in, in, into the narrative, which is rewarding to read. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the politics thing is interesting as well. I think um, I, I suppose that traditionally there there weren't many very political travel books there's definitely a political edge to mine uh, i think more and more though we're seeing travel books that are that are political and i guess since everything got a bit went a bit weird around 2016 <laughs> and um the art in general became more political and i think that's actually true of, of travel writing as well um and I, yeah I, I i definitely don't think i could have written a completely apolitical book so there is there is a bit of i suppose a political edge to it mm-hmm. um which is related to the, the the medical the medical side the medical angle yeah well very good you have a um a very good book here and um it you know just not saying this because you're on the show but it is one of the uh, the better books that I've, I've read recently so um uh, thank you again for for coming on the show where can we find you online uh, if you could go to, my, go to my website, it's stephenfabes.com. And then, yeah, there's 
there's a whole yeah there's more information so you get the sort of the blurb of the book and there's a whole bunch of reviews and then there's links to, to where you can get that from um, if you want to get independent retailers or, or Amazon or wherever else great we'll put the links in the show notes and Dr. Fabes thanks for coming on thanks very much for having me You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.